0: This is a faithful saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Thanks for joining me today. This is Faithful Sayings broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in today. We are in Romans chapter 5. So if you would, please grab your Bible or open your iPad or use your smartphone to open the text to Romans 5. where We are continuing our series in Romans. This is part 7 of our series in Romans of moving from chains of sin to chains of righteousness. As we're breaking down each chapter and thinking about the points that Paul is making and trying to plug that into the bigger picture of the book of Romans. So we discussed Abraham's faith Last week in Romans chapter 4 and how he is held up as an example in what he discovered and in the matter of justification as Paul introduces him in Romans chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. And now we're going to find a contrast in Romans chapter 5 of Jesus Christ and Adam. And Paul here is going to emphasize just how great the grace of God is which is offered through Jesus Christ. And he's going to contrast that with the the ugliness of sin, the cost of sin, uh, to magnify again just how generous and how gracious, how awesome this gift of grace is that has been offered to all mankind through Jesus Christ. In verse 15 of Romans chapter 5, Paul says that the gift, that's the gift of grace, he says, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many. There's a song, an old hymn written by a lady named Julia Johnston in 1911, and it's called "Grace Greater Than Grace Greater Than Our Sin." And it may have some other, um, it may go by some other titles out there, but most people know it as "Grace Greater Than Our Sin." And part of that song. Goes like this marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace that is greater than all of our sin. And I think that song really encapsulates that hymn, really encapsulates what Paul is driving at here, what the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to drive at in Romans chapter 5. This marvelous and amazing grace that is only found through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the critical thing the Holy Spirit would have us understand. He says in in verses one and two of Romans five, if you drop back if you excuse me, if you go back up to the top of this this passage, he says, Therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So this is a text that's, especially verses 1 and 2 that we just read, this text is so often isolated and abused, uh, but it's clearly being connected with the previous example of Abraham that we discussed last week and that is discussed in the previous chapter of Romans chapter 4. And so what what Paul saying is in this therefore, uh, as he's pointing backward to the things he's just said about Abraham, is he saying through this Abrahamic type of faith, as we see and observe Abraham's life and the implicit trust that he had and the obedience that he had and how those things went hand in hand, you can't really separate the two. He says just as Abraham had that kind of faith that he was willing to trust and obey, that through that same kind of faith, we can be justified. That kind of faith. Therefore, having been justified by that kind of faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord. Jesus Christ, and through faith in His sacrifice and the blood that He shed, we can find favor with God and have this perfect standing before Him that was not possible before. Uh, so what else can we take from this this text? Paul goes on in the next few verses to call us to rejoice in, in tribulation. So it's because of God's great love demonstrated through the sacrifice of His Son that we have every reason to rejoice if we have faith in Him, if, if we have obeyed Him, even in the midst of hardship. And so Paul says in verse three, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so Paul's point is, is that Christians can rejoice not only in, in the hope that they have as reborn Creatures, as reborn children, justified children of, of God, but also even in their suffering and tribulations, because he says those times, those times properly responded to, can bring about greater perseverance, greater endurance, proven character, and proven character hope. In James 1 and 2, James 1 1 and 2, that is, uh, there is a similar point that's being made, if not the same point. And James, in James one, one and two, if you want to turn there with me, it says, uh, in verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. And so James was inspired, really, to make to make the same point. I think that that trials and tribulations and temptations, when they are properly responded to, and we resolve to stand firm in the gospel. James and Paul both are saying that that creates a kind of perseverance within the believer, within the Christian. He he or she learns um, better how to resist, and, and, and their character is molded. Their character is, is proven, and all of this leads to having greater hope, because the Lord takes pleasure in steadfastness. That's the connection. So why would You know, why would that give us hope if we're, you know, what's, you know, if we're following the chain here, okay, I respond to suffering, I respond to tribulation or persecution or whatever the right way, in a godly way, and then that proves my character and it builds my character and perseverance. Now, why does that lead to even greater hope? Well, it leads to greater hope because we can see in Scripture that God delights in, in that kind of person. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 36 through 39, it says this, that if it says you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And so notice here, the writer again is is speaking of this endurance, this perseverance that all Christians need to have in order to receive what God has promised. And then he goes on to say, uh, verse 37, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then verse 39, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And so the connection is, the reason that endurance and perseverance leads to hope, and then that hope uh, it bolsters us and even more, and we can cling to that, is because we can see in places like Hebrews 10, 36 through 39, that God takes pleasure in steadfastness, that God takes pleasure in the pleasure in those who continue to live by faith and reckons righteousness to them. And so my heart then is reassured before Him. If I can look at my life and I can compare it with what the Scriptures are saying, and I can see how I should respond to tribulations, I can see how I should respond to suffering and temptation, and if I'm responding according to the biblical pattern, I can know and be assured by the Word of God That I am pleasing before Him, and that gives me hope. So, experiencing trials, experiencing trials and and difficulties and hardship in this life, is not punishment. It's not punishment. It's it's a kind of conditioning, and that's how the scripture is is couching the difficulties of this of this world and this life that we're living. It's it's a kind of training. It's a kind it's preparation. It's and it's preparing us for the life to come and so as 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 i rejoice and prevail by faith my hope in god grows and it's reinforced philippians 1 and verse 28 uh, paul uh, again i think touches on this this point as he's talking about looking at our lives again in light of the scripture and seeing that when we are conforming to that pattern that we can that's a sign of salvation for for example Again, again, Philippians 1 and verse 27, he says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he says in verse 28, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. And so the point that Paul is making is that when people oppose you, when people try to persecute you or isolate you socially or you know get away with whatever they can get away with right? because of their hatred for the truth, the Christian can see that as a sign of salvation for them. In other words, that's, that's a kind of proof from God that you are living according to His word because in this world His people will have tribulation of all sorts. And so, what enables this response in the Christian? Let's think about that for a second. So, we need to respond in a godly way to have this proven character, to have this hope that Paul is talking about here. But what enables us to respond in that way, so that we can benefit? What empowers believers to rejoice and even thrive and grow in in tribulation? Well, I think Paul answers the question in the context of Romans chapter five as he's discussing the grace of God. And the love of God, he says here, the love of God that's been poured out within our hearts. And how did this love arrive in our hearts? The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And Paul does not mean that the actual person of the Holy Spirit and the Godhead was literally handed to us. That the person himself of the Holy Spirit is the gift. But the Holy Spirit, by His revelation and by His miracles and the spiritual gifts that He gave to people, that fills saints with the knowledge of God's love. All those manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power, and especially His revelation of the knowledge of God, that empowers saints. That enables saints to respond in a godly way to tribulation. You know, we still possess His revelation in the Bible and the Holy Word that He has preserved for us. We can still read of the miracles that He enabled men to perform and the miraculous spiritual gifts that He gave. And even though those things have ceased, they've served their purpose and they've come and gone. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8. We're still blessed with spiritual gifts, not miraculous spiritual gifts, but we're still blessed with spiritual gifts through the grace of God. And we're empowered to serve by him in in those things in Romans chapter twelve, jumping a little bit ahead here in Romans twelve, and we'll have more to say about this further down the road as as we get there. Um, Romans twelve, beginning in verse three, says that through the grace of given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, we're to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to their proportion of his faith, of service in his serving; he who teaches in his teaching, and he who exhorts in his exhortation; he who gives with liberality, and he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so Paul says, we we all have these different gifts, and some of the ones that he names in that context are miraculous because those things were still ongoing but we can still speak the oracles of god be because we have his word we can still give we can still show mercy we can still exhort and teach and all these things uh, that paul names in the context and paul is clearly saying that the source of all that is is god's grace and we should wield it and we should use it appropriately in a way that honors him and to the best of our ability we're still blessed um by the holy spirit through his word and that enables us to see god's love and to experience if you will god's god's love and so we can exult in matchless grace and that's the next point that paul makes here in in the context amazingly you know though man is helpless unrighteous and separated from god christ died to rectify that pitiful, hopeless condition to to reconcile all people to himself, Paul says, in verse six. For while we were still while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so he's going to now begin speaking again, uh, and reminding of us, reminding us of the the wonderful grace that's found in Jesus. So imagine for a moment. Uh, I'm going to give you a scenario. Imagine for a moment someone who has hated you his whole life for no real reason is just a hateful person or she's just a hateful person and they've gone out of their way uh, to act upon that hatred, maybe even do violence to you or your family over the years and they're just like a thorn in your side that won't go away and uh, maybe they've even seriously hurt some some of your people mocking you as they went along the way and then ask yourself the question is that somebody worth worth dying for now that's a huge left turn right you know we're thinking of if we're imagining this person in this scenario who is our enemy and who's been so wretched and so terrible to us for a long time and we would be ridiculous enough to ask the question, is that someone worth dying for? Would you even consider it? And what if you knew that person was doomed? What if you knew that person was doomed for eternal torment because of their behavior towards you? Would that inspire any pity in you for that individual? Knowing that when they died, they would, they would be doomed to eternal destruction. Would that inspire any more motivation in you to give your own life for that person? We think about that from a human perspective, and we think, well, that's ridiculous. Who would die for such an evil, worthless villain, such as I've described? Who would dare to offer even their own child to save such a heartless and scornful person? And yet, this is exactly what God did. As Paul says in verse 7, One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were helpless, while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Christ died for us. matchless grace. It's matchless in its offer, matchless in its execution, it's matchless in its power in every way. It's grace extended not just so that we could be forgiven of sins and be free of guilt and have our consciences cleansed, but be delivered from God's wrath that has eternal consequences. We're, We're no longer his enemies, but now we can be his adopted children. We can become part of his own family, reconciled to him again for eternal glory and have the hope of, of a home in heaven. In verse 9, Paul says this, if you continue reading, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So the Heavenly Father knows that we're going to continue to need grace. So we've been reconciled. Christians have been reconciled. Those who have obeyed the gospels, gospel are now joined to God in a covenant relationship. And they're saved by Jesus' death, His sacrifice on the cross, as well as His life, Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 10. And His life there is meant his resurrected life. So it follows his his death. We're saved by his death. We're saved by his life. Uh, and the reason that we're saved by his life is because he now lives his new life as a high priest to intercede for us. Uh, so that's Paul's meaning there in uh, verse 10 of Romans 5 in that section as he's describing being saved by Jesus Christ, Jesus' life as well as his death. And Hebrews chapter 7 uh, we see the what he uses this new what Jesus Christ uses his new life um in in glory to do on behalf of his people it says that he is able to save forever in verse 25 of hebrews 7 that he is able to save forever those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them that's the reason he lives that's why we're saved by his life is because he's dedicated his life that he lives on this side of the resurrection um, of his personal resurrection, that is, he was raised to be glorified and raised to this exalted position of king and high priest that he may intercede for us. John makes this point also in First John 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And so... Jesus again, John says, is our advocate. He's li- he lives to intercede for us, and thus we can and should exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul says in verse verse eleven. Uh, so past tense, we receive the rec- reconciliation, but we still need, we still need, and will always need the grace of God until until our time comes to be judged, and and then on the other side when we are. With Christ and made made perfect. Finally, uh, then we will obtain sinless perfection, but not in this life. Not even Christians are are morally infallible or or sinless. No, we still need the blood of Christ to be forgiven, and we need to continually pray for forgiveness as we recognize our own weaknesses and as the Bible exposes our sin uh, exposes sin in our lives. And that's the power of God's grace. It it's it's ongoing. It can continue to do that, provided we um, meet the conditions that that John describes. That Scripture describes, but specifically John and in First John one, verses six through nine. So let's think about the power of God's grace now, because that's that's how Paul is going to conclude this discussion in Romans chapter five. Um, that God's grace is greater than all of our sin because of its power to not only eradicate past sin, but as we've been uh, discussing it, it exalts us to an unprecedented and privileged position with God. Uh, Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-7, through seven, how we were raised up with Christ to be seated at the right hand of God. That spiritually, that is our position. And Paul is magnifying this same fact in the final section of Romans chapter 5. And he's going to make these series of contrasts now between Adam and and Jesus, beginning in verse uh, 12, I believe. If we go back here to Romans 5, drop down to verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed. there is no law. So let's stop right there for just a moment. Think about what he's saying. He's beginning now to describe Adam. And he says, through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and then all died. Uh, And you need to, it's important that we notice here that all died, not because Adam sinned, but because all sinned in verse 12. That's a critical point to make, a critical point that I think a lot of folks miss. This is another one of those texts that I think, unfortunately, has been misapplied uh, to teach a, a total depravity original sin doctrine in which we inherit the sin of Adam, and it's true we inherit a fallen world, and we're prone to sin. But Paul will make the point later in Romans chapter seven that he himself was once alive apart from the law. Uh, well, how could he, how could he be alive apart from the law and not condemned to death as he's describing here? Well, there was a time in his life when he wasn't accountable to it because he just couldn't understand it, and that is. That could launch us into a different study about the age of accountability and uh, when one is accountable before God. But the scripture makes clear that uh, little children don't know the difference between right and wrong. They certainly conduct themselves in ways that are undesirable and they have to be taught and they have to be disciplined. And again, that's a whole other study. Uh, but the point is is that the doctrine of total depravity, original sin, is foreign to scripture. It's just, it's just not there. And I know there are some texts... That seem to indicate otherwise, but but those texts have been misconstrued, I think, by others, and have to be seen in the light of the principles we can clearly see in Scripture, where children are innocent. Um, and again, not to get off on a big tangent here, uh, but children are innocent or alive apart from the law until they're accountable, until they can understand. Right? One of the conditions to be saved in Jesus Christ is to believe, and one has to have the capacity to believe. One has to ha- ha- has to have the capacity to Understand the Gospels and obey the Scriptures, and and understand what the meaning of the death of Christ. Uh, and little babies just aren't able to do that, right? They're they're incapable, and thus they're unaccountable. And so spiritual death comes as a result of sin, not Adam's sin, but uh, because we personally sin. Every man will, and if we say we have no sin, we're a liar, and the truth is not in us. So the moment we imitate Adam and follow suit in disobedience to God, we incur the same spiritual death that he did. In Genesis 2, 17, it says that Adam would die in the very day that he ate of the fruit. And that's exactly what happened. He didn't die physically. We could say he began to because he was separated from the tree of life, but he was separated from fellowship with God. He no longer had enjoyed fellowship with God. And, uh, that, uh, Death is separation. Biblically, all death is separation. Whether you're talking about physical death, it's separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is separation from uh, God. Uh, our spirit is separated from God. So uh, many conceive of death as just annihilation or or an end of something, but biblically, uh, that's not how it's conceived. It's always a separation. Uh, never uh, an end in the sense of ruin or annihilation, but an end in the sense of uh, disfellowship or separation, the end of the spirit's unity with the body or the end of your spirit's unity with with God. And so all of what Paul says here has to be understood in light of what he has thus far discussed in, in Romans and in light of all Scripture. Again, people are not born spiritually dead and separated from God, as some have used this text to teach total depravity, but rather people share in Adam's spiritual death when they follow his example of disobedience even if they don't sin in the exact same way Adam did. And that's the point he's making in verses 13 and 14 when you continue reading. Until the law, sin was in the world, uh, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him uh, to come. And now we're going to begin to see the gift, uh, verse 15, that came through Christ in contrast to the gift, if you will, that came through Adam, that is the example of of sin. So though, though a single sin would bring forth condemnation for Adam and the fall of everyone who came came after him and be in a fallen world and and lead us into sin, God's response to man's sin against him was was and is more than enough to rectify the consequences. That's what Paul is going to go on to say here that the the free gift verse 15 is not like the transgression in, in that a single sin will bring condemnation whenever you and i sin verse 16 one offense one offense one transgression one sin is all that is needed to condemn us before god but yet god's grace in response to that anticipates not just one transgression again which will ju- which will condemn us in his presence but his grace will cover many Transgressions, And that's Paul's point here when he says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in condemnation. Excuse me, in justification. So one offense, one transgression, results in condemnation. But the free gift resulted from many, many transgressions. And still, it is enough. It is more than enough to cover all of those, to remove all of those. And Paul is speaking to just how merciful our God is that though many are dead in sin and we were dead in sin, there is abundant pardon to be found in Christ. There's no sin and there's no amount of sin or sins that are so great and so vast that God's grace cannot take away, cannot remove. In other words, God didn't just, in giving His Son, God didn't just make things even Stephen. Eternal condemnation is the just penalty for sin, but grace is a merciful gift. That not only removes that penalty, not only takes the penalty away, but puts us in a position of exaltation, puts us in a position of glory. It's not that we're just not condemned, it goes beyond that. We're exalted, we're, we're given glory, we're given sonship, we're, giving, we're given inheritance and, and the hope of heaven. Thus Paul says, where sin abounded, verse 20, grace abounded all the more. And so as we think about this tremendous gift that God has offered in His Son, who would dare choose the way of Adam? Why would we refuse to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? He not only forgives, but He exalts and adopts men and women to be His own sons and daughters, to be heirs with Christ Himself, and be commissioned workers in His kingdom, heirs of eternal life and immortality. Appreciate you tuning in this morning. Let's continue to study these things and resolve to obey the Word of God. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.